HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Sina Rousseau. This series is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Our fall season covers Gastronomica's newest issue, 23.3, which is now available online. This issue focuses primarily on food in place, as issue editor Lisa Haushofer titles her introduction to the volume. It tells stories of lost places, the interplay of food and locality, and considers the social dimensions of concrete spaces such as the kitchen, banquet hall, factory, winery, or supermarket. My guest this week is Nancy Summers, joining us to talk about her article, Things Left Behind which is not only about food and place, but also about confronting some of the artifacts we find in those places that now represent lives lived and how best to remember, or maybe to forget, the stories of food that shape our memories of loved ones. Nancy Summers led the Harvard College Writing Program for 20 years as the Soslin Chair in Writing. She's the author of four college writing handbooks including a writer's reference, a pocket-style manual, and numerous prize-winning essays. Summers directs writing workshops and teaches creative nonfiction at Harvard's Graduate School of Education. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to the show, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's our privilege. Um, Could you start perhaps by telling listeners a little bit uh, in a little bit more detail than I sketched about what your article is about. Yes. So my article is a piece of creative nonfiction. And in creative nonfiction, as a writer, I try to braid many stories together, um, stories that have backstories, backstories that have backstories. And as the genre creative nonfiction, I use the creative techniques of fiction to 
introduce characters, to introduce details and scenes and dialogue. So the stories that I braid together in my essay, the first one is the situation, which is that my parents moved from our family home to an assisted living residence, uh, a move, as I say in the essay, a move that was long overdue. Um, they had clung to the house, to their independence, uh, way beyond the point that they could safely live on their own. And this move happened so quickly. They left the house and all of its contents behind. They left it to me to figure out what to do with everything. I, it, it was like having a family museum filled with objects and memorabilia from my parents' 70 years of marriage and even older keepsakes, um, immigration documents from my parents, my grandparents, my great aunts and uncles. So that was the first story. And the second then was this question, um, what to do? What to do with what was left behind? So as I discovered, as I opened drawers and opened closets and cupboards, I saw that my mother was, as I call it, a safekeeper. Um, she had kept decades upon decades of things in um, in all these cartons and closets and stacked high in, in, in storage rooms. And I found hundreds of photographs of telegrams my parents received uh, on their wedding day, four-leaf clovers that my mother collected and carefully preserved in scrapbooks, letters, cookbooks, recipes, brochures from summer vacations, restaurant menus, so much stuff. And what was I to do with everything? And then the big question that I kept asking as I wrote this essay um, was, why? Why did my mother keep everything? And what did she imagine would be done with all of her objects? So I teach creative nonfiction, and I always say to my students that an essay needs to be motivated by a quest. There must be something as a writer that you want to understand, something that doesn't make sense. And to me, this is what didn't make sense. Why would my mother keep everything and store everything, hold on to um, restaurant reviews and articles from newspapers from 1962, um, recipes from the Indianapolis Star. Why did she hold on to everything? But in this third theme, it is really about my mother's dementia, that, that it was too late to ask her questions about the secret life of her objects. I wanted to ask her questions about the photographs. Who, who's this person? Who's this, who are these people in this photograph who are having this picnic? The men are laughing. The women are looking so pleased with the abundant food that spread before them. I wanted to ask questions, but I couldn't. I wanted to ask questions about the recipes. Um, I wanted to, to ask her, everything about these objects. But when I had these questions and I wanted to hear the stories, the stories were not there for the telling. And dementia is just 
this unraveling of memory, a disappearance of the person you love. And my mother, who was such a sensational cook, she couldn't remember her recipe. She could no longer remember the, f- the names of the food she ate or why people eat. So that was the third theme, the third story I wanted to braid. And the fourth was then this enormous responsibility that I felt in deciding what to keep and what to discard. And so in the essay, I play around with words that seemed important to me, words such as keepsake and safe keep, and then the opposite, forsaking, because each object has a story to tell. And I felt this kind of responsibility to preserve. It was these these objects felt as if they were telling the story of my mother's life. And so it it, it just felt such a responsibility to decide what to do. So in the essay, I, I braid all these different stories together. And uh, you do so beautifully. Um, my next question was going to be about what motivated you to write the article, but I think that uh, you have kind of hinted at that already when you mention this sense of responsibility. Um, I I gather both towards your mother um, and her memory and probably also to yourself. But if we could dive a little bit more into some of the writing, um, if you wouldn't mind, you start by describing, I mean, I think there's one uh, detail that's really important for listeners who haven't yet had the chance to read your article. And that is that many of the things that you have been that you described so beautifully and that you found that you found uh, after she was moved to uh, assisted care you weren't allowed to have access to before when you were a child these were sort of for, these were sort of forbidden so you start by describing a, a sort of deep discomfort or a, a sort of voyeurism as you started looking through your mother's boxes, her cupboards, her other possessions after her worsening dementia uh, led to her assisted care. And your task was to decide, as you described, what to do with the things left behind, as as the piece is titled. In your childhood, these had been out of your reach. Magical objects in what you called, and I quote, Bluebeard's forbidden chamber, which your mother had warned you should, and I quote again, stay in their place, lest you mess things up. Later in the piece, and after sharing some of the recipe cards that you found particularly, you recall that never mind looking in carefully managed and curated cupboards and boxes, and this is your quote again, a daughter in the kitchen would interfere with the exact measuring of flour, the gentle handling of the dough, the precise arranging of apple slices, and give neighbors something to gossip about. Yet you write with such exquisite hospitality, inviting readers into a very intimate space, which is at times clearly conflicted about what boundaries you might be crossing in your own sort of life and memory, and at least in in the mind of that younger self who had learned to obey where she wasn't allowed to go. 
So in terms of the writing process and how we filter memories and help ourselves and form the memories of those who we are writing about, how might one negotiate that internal sort of ethical review if one is sharing things that were sort of out of bounds before? And then also how some of the specific artifacts that you decided to share, the menu for your parents' wedding feast in 1947, which I hope we can touch on a little bit later. It's fantastic. Uh, handwritten recipes for apple kuchen, Mrs. Kahn's strudel, and a newspaper article uh, or newspaper cutout of a letter to, I gather, a newspaper advice columnist called Eloise, recommending a tray of ice cubes to remove excess grease from a pot of short ribs. How might that have helped the process? I, uh, is there something about recipe cards or those particular kind of artifacts that might be less personal than, say, private letters? Great, great question. So I, when I teach creative nonfiction and students ask me, should they write about relatives and the ethics of writing about real people in their lives and not fictionalizing uh, the characters, I always say, if you're writing out of anger or if you're writing out of revenge, don't write. Um, readers don't want to read essays written out of revenge and anger. I like to write out of love. And, and I hope readers will feel in my essay that I've written a tribute to my mother and that I have written out of love. And if I could have, I would have read the essay aloud to, to my mother. Um, I, her dementia was so serious that it wouldn't have meant anything to her. But when I have written essays about my family before, before publishing, I have always let them read it. And if they had any kinds of uh, complaints or so. But what I found, actually, was my family loved it. They, they, they were surprised that I remembered so much about my childhood or that they felt it was a, a, a tribute to them. And yes, I did feel like a voyeur when I first opened closets and when I opened cupboards and when I opened the, my mother's uh, desk because she had never as a child allowed me inside. And suddenly, if I hadn't gone inside these closets and the cupboards, no one would have. Um, and so I did it slowly and tenderly and carefully and respectfully in the beginning. But then I think after a while, I realized going through my mother's things was in itself an act of respect and, and love, as opposed to just saying, well, these things are here. We don't need them anymore. Let's throw them away. And so I was very slow in going through everything. And in the back of my mind was, of course, Marie Kondo. It's very popular these days, Marie Kondo's theory that you should only save the things in your life that spark joy. And I kept laughing about that, thinking, I'm so glad my mother didn't read Marie Kondo because she was the opposite. 
I think Marie Kondo would be yeah, an archivist's nightmare. Yes, you know, and so, um, you know, I wondered, as I say, why did she keep everything? And and in the essay, I, I speculate, well, my mother escaped Germany at age 11 and um, had to leave everything behind and was left with nothing. And so maybe that was one of the reasons why she held on to everything. Also, she was a very uh, practical, frugal homemaker. And so she saved what she thought she might need at some future point, such as cloth remnants and fabric scraps, uh, recipes clipped from local newspapers. And in the process of going through things, I found things that were so exciting to me. So at the point when I started to find things that were exciting, I think I lost that sense of being a voyeur. So one of the examples of what I found was a record of what my mother served her guests, uh, written on three by five cards from 1967 to 1993. Um, Every time a certain guest came, she recorded what she served. And after looking through these wonderful, wonderful uh, menus that she served our guests, I saw not only that she loved her guests and she wanted to, to make sure she served them a wonderful meal, but she also she wanted to make sure she didn't serve them the same thing uh, when they when they returned for dinner. But also she cared so much about what her table looked like, how she set the table, and she would draw diagrams about how best to serve her food, especially appetizers. And I loved that about my mother, about the care and the love that she had for her guests and and wanted to get everything just right. That's incredibly special. I mean, as you do, as you do mention in the piece, what an incredible resource for um, a historian, for an archivist, but even just, as you say, as a record of care. And there is a sentence that stood out to me in the article uh, at some point where you wrote that I must be careful. And that is something that you've been describing about the taking it slow and the process, I suppose, of uh, both coming to terms with what you're seeing and the joy of seeing it and also how to share it and how best to honor your mother's memory. Um, So that sort of care, but it is an amazing thing to think about that record of what you serve people and how you do it with these days. I couldn't help, but as you were talking, think about these days, it would be all recorded on Instagram for everyone to see. I mean, so many people do that and there's nothing wrong with that, Uh, but there is something very special about the, the time that it takes not only to make sure that everyone is welcome and uh, feels looked after in your home, but also to record all of that. That's, uh, that's really magnificent. I also, as I, as I pursued this quest, why did she keep everything? Um, she held on to immigration documents, doctor's reports, birthday cards, everything 
birthday card, every anniversary card she received. And I think that holding on to the things that people give you is a way of showing love. And that so much of what she held on to was out of love and out of loyalty to the person who gave her this thing. And so it magnified for me, if she held on to every birthday card, what was the way I best could show my love for her? Did did I have a responsibility to hold on to every birthday card that she had received? And so it is, as I say, a great responsibility and an act of love to go through the things that people leave behind and to to want to know why. Why did they, what did it mean to them and what could be done with these things? And so I'm still at this process. I've, I've saved so much in which I'm looking for archives, archives that are interested in postcards from a certain period who archives interested in in um, recipe boxes and archives interested in cookbooks and birthday cards. I, I know there are archives everywhere interested in these kinds of collections, but that feels an act of respect that these things have a place in the world. Absolutely. And also because they there's such an interesting tension between artifacts as kind of static, um, static pictures of a time, but also a dynamic expression that that has a bounty of care in it. Every recipe card that ends with your one example, I think it's the recipe for uh, apple strudel that you share, ends off with arranging apples, apple slices neatly. It's so important, those little details to make sure everything's right. Um, we are moving towards uh, the time when we take a little break, but I, I just, before the break, and we can come back to it afterwards, I wanted to come back to the fantastic wedding menu for your parents' marriage in 1947 uh, that you share, and there's an image of in the article. Um, so the caption is, wedding menu for Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Walter Summers in March of 1947 featuring dishes like uh, very exotic things like suprême de fruit princesse, roast young Vermont turkey imperial, asparagus polonaise, glace fantasy, and frivolity. A sort of splendid example of what must have been completely foreign and exotic to both your parents and presumably their guests. As you were saying, they were immigrants, migrants, uh, came from Germany, German Jewish immigrants who preferred their food pickled and brined. And so, what I, what it made me curious about was whether you thought that such a menu, which is so far from the sort of strudel and the kuchen that she might have been more comfortable with, was one of the ways that she intentionally, and I quote you again, navigated invisibility with the need for visibility in social situations. And then I finally want to ask whether maybe your father was involved or maybe not at all, because he's only mentioned in passing in the essay, but we can return to that after the break. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. 
This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back. You're listening to Gastronomica on Heritage Radio Network with your host, Sina Rousseau, speaking to Nancy Summers about her article, Things Left Behind, published in our latest issue, 23.3, now available online. So just before the break, Nancy, we were speaking about the menu for your parents' wedding, which happened in 1947, uh, and you share an image of that in your article. And in addition to speaking about how your parents uh, were German Jewish immigrants, it's a menu that is full of things that are very exotic. You can tell by the words like imperial and polonaise and francaise, uh, it's all sort of must have been very foreign. And I was asking you whether that choosing such a thing, such a menu might be a way to try to fit into a very radically different environment and also how much your father might have been involved because you don't speak about him much in the article. Great. I loved, I just loved finding this menu for my parents' wedding. I grew up with photos of my parents from their wedding, but of course, I had never seen the menu from their wedding. Um, And I found it so interesting because these are not foods from family gatherings, and these were not foods from um, my childhood. I as I say in the essay, I, I grew up with sauerbraten and, and foods that were brined and, and vinegary. And so I found this so interesting. But I think what it represents were my parents' aspirations to be American. And so we, they wouldn't, as I imagine it, and again, it's only a work of imagination because Nobody is alive, really, to uh, to ask the questions. I mean, I'm sure it was my uh, my mother's father who would have, um, and her aunts who would have been in charge of the wedding. Um, but I think it was their aspirations to be American and to say we have arrived and we are here in America. Uh, that that's what that menu represented. Um, and about my father, um, I've written essays about my wonderful, wonderful father. But this essay, 
I wanted very much to be about my mother because the home was, my mother was what was called in the 50s and and so a homemaker, and she made our home, and the kitchen was her place. And so all of these objects that that she left behind were of a place. And, and although I, there were many objects that were my father's and from my father's family, um, he didn't care about them in the way that my mother did. So I wanted this really to be an essay that, that is a tribute to my mother. Um, thinking about the menu, one of the, the, the wonderful objects that I found, and I found it very late in my searching through closets and, and drawers and cupboards, was a 1941 autobiography that my mother had written when she was a high schooler. Um, at age 16, and it was it's called Looking Back. And what was so wonderful about this was she, she narrated childhood stories that she had never told me, this gift um, about her childhood. Um, she was very private and very closed about her childhood. And, and what I loved so much about this autobiography is that it's written in her, in a 16-year-old voice, animated, optimistic, um, narrating her own life story. But the greatest moment is when she narrates the moment of arriving triumphantly in America. And she has this wonderful, wonderful sentence in which she writes in her autobiography, you can't imagine how I felt. When I first saw the Statue of Liberty, I think it waved to me, welcome, stranger. And I just love that. I, I mean, it, it, you know, it's just the whimsy, the hopefulness of an immigrant imagining the Statue of Liberty waving to her. And so that's what I think this menu is, the Statue of Liberty waving and saying to this family, you have arrived. That's wonderful. In the section of your essay where you speak about your mother's autobiography written at the age of 16, which I also think is just fabulous, uh, I think my favourite part is that it also contained a copyright page, imagining that it was published by William Morrow and Company, already in its third printing, which is, in terms of aspiration, um, a beautiful thing to think about. But if you, if you wouldn't mind going back to, I mean, so you spoke about your mother as a homemaker, but you also mentioned at some point, or you mentioned at some point, that she was a botanist and she had, and she saved leaves and so on, and she taught her children about trees. And so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that, uh, her role as a botanist, um, which becomes referred to in almost frustrating passing in the context of reflections on a little bit later in the piece, you talk about that once you had all gone to college, uh, you and your siblings, I'm not sure how many of you they were, um, she, she had applied for a job in telemarketing 
and she had started her application with dear sir i am just a homemaker and unfortunately she did not get the job but everything that you describe about her attests to such a deep care of a taxonomist you know noticing remembering filing categorizing not just for herself um you talk about uh, as i say how she delighted in taking her children on leaf walks to turkey run state park wandering in the natural world where she felt at home among trees she loved sycamore poplar beech chestnut explaining to you children that quote you must know a tree by its name know its bark the shape of its leaf to love a tree and after quizzing you on leaves and barks you would return home to baked apples which were your favorite fall dessert while you carefully pressed leaves between layers of wax paper and preserved them dating and labeling your collections and to me as a reader it sounds like she was teaching you science as well as a connection perhaps between the trees and the leaves and the soil that you were out and she was teaching you to appreciate and eventually the baked apples that you came back to enjoy in the comfort of your kitchen i think my mother was offering us lessons about what she loved she loved the natural world she loved trees she loved leaves and if she had gone to college in the 1970s or 1980s she would have been a a professional botanist worked at the botanical society or you know as she often said i wish i had gone to medical school um and and i think she would have she could have run a corporation she was so capable um but i think she was more comfortable in the natural world because she was so uncomfortable in many ways um in the larger world she had grown up in 1930s germany with anti-semitism and nazism and she came to america landed in america but still that imprint of that fear that a fear of anti-semitism the fear of people talking about her was so strong uh, that i think walking in the woods walking in state parks it just a different mother would 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 we would see a different mother because she was so 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 comfortable that that uh that letter you refer to that was such an emotional moment as i was i was looking through a box and the box my mother labeled her boxes and some of the labels had to do with just restaurant reviews or the family trip to the smoky mountains or years so there was this box that was labeled 1971 and the big surprise in it was the drafts and my mother wrote drafts of letters um because she wanted to get it right and so there were drafts of this application letter for a telemarketing position and i think um uh 
what took me back so much in this letter, two things. First of all, was that my mother described herself as just a homemaker. And 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 that seemed so self-effacing and so inadequate to describe my my mother's enormous homemaking capacities and her deep botanical knowledge. But then it was just this, oh, this pain, this slug to my heart when I found then the rejection letter in which some what seems like some robotic, uh, um, some generated letter from some, you know, person or what we now would say AI, um, was written, Dear Madam, I regret to inform you that the position you applied for has been filled. And I use this moment to say, well, what should I do with this kind of letter? It seems like a primary source document, um, almost like a piece of the women's movement as women of my mother's generation, homemakers search for more. And so this this moment in which my mother was searching for more um, by applying to for this telemarketing position, and then she was rejected. It seemed extremely rude. That rejection. Yes. It is kind of rude. And I but I love that attention to detail of writing drafts of letters and that even these exist in an archival form. I mean, that is something that I'm sure we can agree on, and many of our listeners and um, readers who also teach, I mean, that sort of we rely on spell check and now so much chat GPT or whatever to do that work for us, but that the labor, the labor of thinking something through and deciding it's not good enough and starting again is something right. that I know even, you know, for ourselves, it's, it's something which is difficult to, to come to terms with. Editing what we write ourselves is a difficult thing. Um, but before we run out of time, if I can just touch on a final thing, you spoke about um, being out in nature where your mother seemed to be a different sort of person. And I wanted to end on talking about the sort of grammar of, of remembering, if you will, um, because you close the piece by describing, and I quote you again, your new mother, who now lives in the present tense, after previously having written that you weren't sure that you could find the right words to return my mother to herself. And just going back to then the writing process, and I, I'm trying not to use the word catharsis because it's too cliched uh, in a sense, but something about that there's a beautiful process that happens, seems to happen in your essay about starting out looking for something that is very much in boxes in the past in recipe cards and somehow finding a way to write about your mother in the present. Yes, thank you. I think that I wouldn't use the word catharsis. I would use the word gift. I felt that that going through 
closets and cupboards and drawers and storage cabinets that I learned a lot about my mother and 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 it was a gift to to be able to open and to see the person um, who she no longer was, but who she was so open to me and so available to me in the objects, in the things that she cared about, that she loved so much. And I could gain another viewpoint, another perspective, another way of understanding her life. And the place I land in the essay, I I kept asking myself, why did my mother save everything? And I realized I'll never know. I really will never know. I can use a lot of conjecture. I can use the word maybe it's because, perhaps, but I really won't know. And um, as I write in the essay, life catches us in the middle. And we imagine that we have all the time in the world to assemble photos into albums, to use the scrap fabrics we save, to cook the recipes in the recipe cards. And we like to imagine a life in which we'll need these things one day. And I hope that I will need these things one day to tell my own life story. And it was a a privilege, a pleasure to be able to tell my mother's life story as a tribute to her. And as I hope readers will ask themselves the question, why do they hold on to things? Why do they save things? And what do they want to do with the things that they too are leaving behind? Well, thank you, Nancy. I know that I'm certainly motivated to go and look at my own boxes of cards and things. And my own mother is also an excellent archivist, was very good at labeling things. Um, And meanwhile, you've given a great gift also by sharing this lovely intimate story and fantastic um, images of these Uh, beautiful personal artifacts with readers and uh, we hope that as many as possible will get to look at your article and in detail is there anything before we end off um that you'd like to tell us that you're working on at the moment any new projects I am thinking a lot more about recipes and recipe cards. And I became interested uh, as I went through my mother's recipe cards and became very interested in the language of recipe cards. And so, for instance, so many of my mother's recipes are written in the imperative as almost as if she's giving an instruction or almost as if she is writing an instruction manual to herself and to others. And, you know, when she says, for instance, in one of her recipes, um, you know, 
arrange them neatly. Well, does she imagine that there's somebody who wouldn't arrange them neatly? And when she she writes that you want to sprinkle a thin layer of matzo meal over the bottom of the dough, and then she puts in parentheses, if you don't have matzo meal, you can use lightly toasted breadcrumbs, and that the pur- purpose of the breadcrumbs is to avoid a soggy crust. So I'm very interested in recipes and recipe cards and notations. And I also, I, I am so fascinated by handwritten recipes. And I know that I, I love to frame handwritten recipes. And, and I think that there's something very powerful about the hand that has written in the personality and the recipe card. So that's something that I'm thinking a lot about. And that we can look forward to. The language of recipes is indeed very uh, interesting. Just very briefly, when I was reading about your mother's instruction to arrange the apple slices neatly, I couldn't help but think about my own work on the development of food media from the Second World War. And one of the key texts that I looked at was the book Mediterranean Food, written by Elizabeth David, the British food writer in 1950. And the very first recipe for soup au pistou, um, at a time when the, where the, there was still rationing in England. So there was people thought it was very audacious for her to write about things like lemons and garlic that they couldn't find. But one instruction was to chop the parsley very finely indeed. And that indeed <laughs> just made it um, that much more Elizabeth David. Indeed, indeed. We are unfortunately out of time. So thank you so much, Nancy, for joining us. Listeners will be able to read the full piece in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, issue 23.3 now online. For more details, you can also visit gastronomica.org where you can read the full editor's letter and see the table of contents. We'll be back in two weeks when we'll be talking with Dan Bender about his new article on wine and ruins. And do subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes this season. Thank you. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.